a lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film Podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and podcaster and comedian Graham Clark. One of the very first musical bios was produced in 1909 by Edison Films. It tells the story of Beethoven composing Moonlight Sonata. In it, he takes a walk after a long day. It's tough being a genius that will last centuries. And here's one of his songs being played by a blind girl on the piano. He comes through a window and joins her and they play together, like you do. He thinks about how she's never seen the beauty of moonlight reflected on water. Now, this inspires him to go home and write one of the most famous pieces of music in the world to convey the essence to her. Now, of course, this never happened. In fact, it wasn't named Moonlight Sonata until after his death, and he hated it was a popular song because he felt, and I quote, surely I have written better things. Now, we all know that Edison had a fleeting affair with the truth, but perhaps he was onto something when it came to what we want from our stories about our musical icons. It may not be true, but it will be entertaining and wonderfully soundtracked. Now, today, we're going to look at two movies that play fast and loose with musical backstories, one that utilizes admitted untruths as a meta storytelling tool. But what is it about the musical biopic, be it the story of a song or an artist, that often elevates to the prestige? And why do we feel we have to embellish the stories? Now, Graham, you are someone that loves a musical biopic, I am sure. You like music movies in general. You're a music kind of guy. What do you find attractive about the genre? I like the uh, um, finding out whole pieces of information that I never knew about uh, an album or a person's career or just these funny kind of stories. Because sometimes musicians, they they don't get a book dedicated mm. to their yeah. career. So it's neat to see in a movie like some new twist or some new kind of person character that I never knew existed, that kind of thing. And they're also just fun to watch because there's a lot of music in them. So they're just like a musical without the yeah. musical. It's just, uh, so yeah, they usually <laughs> have the best soundtracks of any movies out there. It's always weird for me when they do a biopic, but they don't have the authorization oh of the music God. of the person they are doing. It's like, then why, sure. quite frankly, yeah. why are you bothering? It's Jackie Jorp Jorp from, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. yeah, 30 Rock. 30 Rock, yeah. And there's, it seems like it's happening more since 30 Rock. I don't know if it always happened, but. Uh, Andre 3000 was in a Jimi yeah. Hendrix one that didn't have Jimi Hendrix music in it. <laughs> Which, weirdly, I have heard is good. Oh, really? You have wow. to get over, you have to get over that hump. And yeah. There was also a David Bowie one recently that didn't have David Bowie. so weird. Yeah. Why would you bother? Why would you bother? I don't know. It's it's like know. going ahead without the second lead in the movie. Like it's the, you know, yeah. if you did the Elton John one without <laughs> Elton John music, <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, part of me wonders if you just you just start going and you get too far gone by the time they're like, you can't use this you music. You can't secure these rights. I don't know. Yeah. I think yeah. there's an off fuck it quality to it as well. Like, I know the Nina sure. Simone one didn't have the blessing of Nina Simone's family, and I don't think it had mm. Nina Simone's music in it either, and it was uh, Zoe Saldana playing Nina Simone. Oh, yeah. But I know yeah. there has been a... Uh, Janis Joplin one in the works for decades and yeah. apparently her estate is just like yeah no nobody's gotten this right nobody's getting her music yeah. maybe I like the idea of an estate being like yeah I think you might have the wrong angle on this you know like being able to kind of mm. control that point of view and that perspective of a lot of people I mean what makes a good story is conflict and I think that's one of the reasons why movies sure. like you know um, Walk the Line is so interesting is you're, everyone thinks of Johnny Cash as this hero and you're seeing this whole other side of him where he was a nightmare to his wife yes. right yeah. so 
so that's kind of a, 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 a com- complexifying the the mysterious, complexifying the mystique, I guess. That's some kind of sentence started. you just said there. Complexifying <laughs> the <Yeah>. mystique. <laughs> I like big words. <laughs> that's what's going on my yeah. poster. <laughs> Becky Shrimpton, complexifying the mystique. <laughs> sure. I, I think you're right, though, that a lot of people aren't. And actually, both of these movies are not bad at like showing a, a kind of darker side of the, the two people. But I, I think that a lot of people and a lot of families of, of deceased people are afraid of that. I know that one of the kind of interesting ones in Canada is there was a fairly contemporaneous Terry Fox uh, TV movie made for HBO. Is that the one with... Uh, um, maybe Gene Hackman? No, maybe not Gene, Gene Hackman. Hackman. Not Ed Harris, but uh, oh, yeah. uh, Robert Duvall. Yes, there you go. Robert Duvall. Yes, Robert Duvall is the coach. Yeah. But that one, it, it, it portrays him as quite a complicated person. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it kind of disappeared, I think, for a long time. And then they made a new one that it's a lot more inspirational. Uh, and it's interesting to kind of see that narrative change. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I and I think that that's the same with uh, with musicians and probably the further we get from their their uh, lives, maybe the more we can be honest about it. I don't know. Okay, yeah. We're going to be talking about Twenty Four Hour Party People in a moment, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, in part because it kind of shows. And I mean, everyone knows I love producers, which is a very controversial thing to say mm. <laughs> in the current <laughs> climate. But I, I love that they're simultaneously the unsung heroes and the unsung villains. And I think the fact that you're making a musical biopic about someone who wasn't musical at all, but he was really good at being at the right place at the right time and kind of getting his finger on the pulse of what would what would fly and then kind of allowing, like cultivating an environment where those people could create is I think a very interesting thing. So you get this awesome jukebox quality to it because this person was at the center of this musical storm that was happening in Manchester um, without him being able to play or sing or anything even remotely I like similar. that he said in the movie that I'm not the main character in my own story. That was very mm. like, I was like, that is basically the headline of the whole movie. It's this guy's been around some of the most <laughs> famous musicians. And, but you know, you could, you could not know who he was. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, let's get into our first film today where you probably will know who this lead is because when Marshall Bruce Mathers III, known as Eminem, released his debut album in 1996 about living in a desolate Detroit, his girlfriend Kim and his soon to be born daughter, it fell on deaf ears. It was when he concocted his additional persona, known as Slim Shady in 1999, that's when the world took notice. Controversy and lawsuits followed, and so did a semi-autobiographical biopic starring Eminem himself, a bevy of A-list stars, and directed by podcast favorite Curtis Hansen. But did this big-budget production give cred to the hip-hop star, or simply add the list of things he felt he had to apologize for? Now, Graham, had you seen this one previously? Yeah, a couple of times, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> a couple times. Okay. Is this, would you put this on your like must watch list? Like where does this fall for you in terms of the biopic? It depends on what list I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> listing it on. Cause biopic, <laughs> there's probably more interesting biopics out there mm. that are more dynamic. And like we were saying, it's, you know, bring truth to light, good and bad. And so it's, mm. n- it's not high on that list, but in terms of like the like scrappy, uh, you know, underdog works their way up to success. It's pretty high. It's pretty high on that list. So, um, so I do. I enjoy it. I've seen it more than once. So it fits in like almost a Rocky esque sort of thing. And it like the high isn't as high as people remember, but what we rem- remember is the emotion after the event. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, Graham, why don't you why don't you tell people a bit about what this is about? Uh, so it's loosely based on uh, Eminem Marshall Mather's life. He plays uh, a young man named Rabbit, 
who is living in Detroit in uh, you know one of the sectors where houses are crumbling and it's just uh, non-ending urban decay. <laughs> he's lost his job. He's had to move back in with his mother and his sister in a trailer park near Eight Mile, which gives the movie its name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is also an aspiring rapper, and we see him uh, at a nightclub trying to uh, compete. He's got somebody that works there, really believes in him, and he chokes. He chokes on the night, can't come up with any of his uh, wonderful rhymes, is kind of run out of the place. Uh, he, he accepts a job at a factory where seemingly the whole job is him pressing one button with another guy that they like press the button together, and then a machine <laughs> does something, and that's his whole job. <laughs> <laughs> that just tells you how much of a comedian you've been. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, you know, people push buttons, things happen. Uh, in, and then at that job, he meets uh, a woman that he's automatically uh, completely smitten with, played by Brittany Murphy. The rest of the movie is is him confronting uh, the poverty, his friends, and he's got a tight group of friends. Um, they're always kind of getting in scraps, and uh, one of the characters uh, blows his penis off, I think, at one point <laughs> with a gun. And uh, it's it it's really like you you buy I buy anyways the friendships uh, amongst these guys, these kind of misfits. Um, but with this new gal in his corner and his uh, his mother, you know, being able to win some money at bingo table to stay in their trailer. And live there a bit longer. He goes back. He goes back to the the rap battling uh, after him being at work and totally blowing away like an amateur uh, rap battler named mm-hmm. played by Exhibit from Pimp My Ride fame. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes back to the nightclub. He absolutely dominates, and uh, we see him walking away to an uncertain but probably very bright future. So that's Eight Mile. Thank you. That was excellent. I I was never really an Eminem fan. I very much came up with the, like, I find him deeply problematic and, like, kind of mm. fed into sort of the hype around him of, like, it's deeply misogynistic. I never really, and anyone I knew who, like, really liked him tended to be a deeply problematic young white suburbanite young man uh, with a lot of uh, opinions that were not great. Um, but I have to admit that I have now sort of reconsidered what he was doing and almost the satirical bent of what he was doing. And coming to the, and I, I avoided this movie as a direct result. And I'm kind of sorry I did because number one, he's amazing in this. And number two, I think it's, it's such a, an interesting idea about the importance of art and the struggle of art when people like finding something to kind of grab onto when everything else around you is kind of falling apart. What do you, how do you express yourself? What do you get through you? And I think this is one of the best movies I've seen that doesn't hit you over the head with that, but does a really good job of expressing it. Yeah. And it's, it's the one thing that I like about it is it's everybody that he's competing with is on that same level. It's not like mighty Mm. ducks where there's the super team versus the scrappy, like everybody's in the same pot. Everybody's hoping to make, their way out of wherever they are. And uh, which you don't see that a lot in movies. It's always like the heavy is, uh, you know, the snobs versus the slobs kind of films. So this this didn't have that. That had like a, a, well, it has a little bit of it, but I won't uh, Mm -hmm. say it for anybody who wants the, uh, (laughs) the ending not spoiled. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think you're right. Like it is, it's a neat, uh, different kind of, uh, perspective on on 
art and regular life. I think it's also interesting that it's not uh, funny, like at all, because that's, <laughs> I think, what you associate with Eminem, right? Like, he's he's not a comedy rapper, but at least his hits are, like, usually funny and, and tongue-in-cheek. And, uh, yeah, this is, this is, I guess some of the battles get a little funny, but for the most part, it's like, no, it's pretty, uh, pretty straight kind of melodrama. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and even when he's doing the rap battles, like, the comedy comes from his own awareness of who he is and his self-deprecation. Like, the whole point is that he gets to himself before anybody else yes. can. Yeah. Like, that's the, that's kind of how you play it, which also is like, well, that's kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you, are you going to make it in this big world if you don't like yourself? <laughs> like, let's see how this goes. The one thing, and it can't be overstated enough, that when this movie came out, Eminem was so famous for having dyed blonde hair the fact that he dyed it black was like mm. blew people's minds. <laughs> like it would be like Flava Flav appearing in a movie, no clock. You'd be like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, it, yeah, it makes sense that he's like uh, deep into his character, even though he kind of looks the same. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, everything we know, he's got a daughter, he's got a bad mom he doesn't like. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it was very funny. And I mean, yeah, I guess that's, uh, it's interesting because it's not too, like it, it didn't take a lot of time between him becoming famous and this movie coming out, which is also kind of interesting. So I think that it was playing a lot with the legend, uh, and you know that's uh, and I and I think he liked that. Like he he wasn't necessarily trying to slavishly tell his own. It's not like the Gene Krupa story or whatever boring <laughs> movies there were that were just like this is a hundred percent real. Yeah, uh, and that I think works in its favor as well. Um, I think one of the things I wasn't able to figure out was the chicken and egg of this. Like I couldn't figure out where in the process he came along. Mm. Like if he wanted to originate the story and then managed to get Curtis Hansen and and you know. Uh, Frank Silver and everybody else on board, or sorry, Scott Silver on board, or what happened there? Yeah, I found a bit on it, and and it was yeah, like that Eminem wanted to do a story about Detroit and Detroit rap, basically, um, and I th I think that they even had the Scott Silver script because at least Mackay Pfeiffer kind of mentioned that he he saw the script before most of it was together and decided it was interesting, uh, and then. They auditioned a bunch of directors, which is the interesting thing. Uh, and uh, apparently Danny Boyle was close to doing it, but Eminem really liked Curtis Hansen. And they just kind of got each other. And I think Curtis Hansen also is like, he kind of could see that Eminem could potentially be uh, an okay actor. And, and he liked that levels of persona. He's like, this guy kind of understands the personas, but now I need to kind of like strip away all personas. Totally, yeah. And and the fact that it was in Detroit, I feel like Detroit had, uh, you know, just visually it only been explored very minimally in film as mm -hmm. being this like completely bombed out uh, areas of the city, uninhabitable. Like, I don't think I had seen that at the time. I hadn't seen yeah. Detroit uh, portrayed that way, except maybe in like a Michael Moore documentary or something mm. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was... Like what a what a devastating backdrop to uh, tell try to tell some kind of inspirational story. It was that's what stood out to me was how how decrepit everything was 
that they were kind of living in. Well, part of that, too, is that they are very much set dressing, especially the trailer park. Mm-hmm. Like, I, when I was reading, that actually, some of the residents were a little pissed off because they did make it look really <laughs> crappy. And that, yeah. in fact, was it wasn't that bad. <laughs> so, like, adding the uh, adding all the cars and stuff like that. Yeah, apparently it's not, it's not that bad. But I do think, like, all of those back alley shots, like, all of that absolutely looks fantastic. And, I mean, you think about where Curtis Hansen is coming from here. So he's, Wonder Boys is directly before this. Um, and then right before that is LA Confidential. And LA Confidential has a lot of that same like grit, but like with a like a glossy grit, mm-hmm. I would almost say. Yeah, like yeah. that's kind and that's almost the exact same vibe. Wonder Boys almost feels like a weird outlier for Curtis Yeah, it's, I forgot that he had done that because it doesn't seem doesn't seem in his uh his wheelhouse as much. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah, he likes them dark. I just showed my my partner the bedroom window for the first mm. time, and he was like, "Steve Gutenberg, what is happening?" And I was yeah. like, "Yep." Yeah, there. I mean, he's an interesting director too, because I think that a lot of people uh, love In Her Shoes as well, which is like this kind of well realized movie between women, which you wouldn't expect from him as well. But I, I think, yeah, the, it's just a weird thing where like La Confidential let him kind of do whatever he wanted, and what he wanted was a lot of kind of different projects and and just kind of seemed to keep working that way until he died fairly young as well which is kind of like unfortunate so yeah uh, unusual he got sick and kind of yeah his 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 last movie is co-directed because he had to drop out of it oh wow well let's get into a little bit about the the biopic aspect of uh, bringing in your your celebrities here. So this is a weird year for making vehicles for pop stars because this is the same year as Crossroads, which we will be discussing on the podcast uh, mm. with Emily Gange and uh, Sydney Urbanik, which is I fascinating. can't believe Karen that I'm Manning. not involved in this Crossroads. I feel ripped <laughs> Sorry, off now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. We also paired it with Millennium Actress, which if you haven't seen Millennium Actress, please see Millennium okay. Actress because it's insane. There's that. There's also um, Austin Powers Gold Member is the same year with Beyonce. Mm. Um, and these are three, like, I would actually do a double bill with Eight Mile and Crossroads because I think people forget how dark, like deeply dark Crossroads is. Mm. And also both of them have Taron Manning in them. Sure. So there's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's a, it was a, it's an interesting time because there was that kind of pop boom in the late 90s. And it's the weird time where all the record labels, we've talked a bit about the like the record labels were the movie studios and vice versa. So having a great album matters. And of course, this movie is like a big deal because it had Lose Yourself and which then went on to be the first rap song to win an Oscar. So I think that they knew that that was good. I don't know if Crossroads album did all right, uh, but uh, uh, not a girl, not yet a woman. Oh yeah, that's that. not bad. So yeah, it made a lot of money. Sure, yeah, <laughs> kind exactly. Of, kind of a big but deal. like lose yourself, and this is what I know as a performer. Like across North America, that would be mm. a song performers would listen to before going on stage to hype themselves. Wow, up. like that was that that was the song. I think not only that year, but like four years following. Oh yeah, yeah. Became and I think it was big. I've heard that it was big with athletes as well. That it was just like that mm. driving beat and talking about taking sure. a chance and grabbing onto something. And <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's funny to think of all these like 
stand-up comedians like pumping themselves up. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Graham, just off, just off beats here. I just get very curious. When you walk on stage, do you get to request what song you walk on stage to? Depends on the place. Like uh, it depends. Yeah, it does depend on the venue. I love it when they ask because I often say, uh, "Man, I feel like a woman." That's my favorite because <laughs> <laughs> it starts with "Let's well, Go should. Girls" and then. Oh it yeah, comes. okay. <laughs> I was just thinking, I'm like, that's got like a nice upbeat drive. Yeah, I'd want yeah, that. yeah, that's, yeah. That's great. I'd want she's a brick house, but that's nice, just me. nice. <laughs> just saying. Um, yeah, and this also as well that this was his first number one because, like, oh, I right? just remember wow. this is first number one. So everything else charted, but "Lose Yourself" is the the first number one he had. Um, I also love that he he did not perform at the Oscars. He performed it when they did that big like anniversary mm-hmm. one where they in were doing everything yeah. in twenty twenty. But they he didn't in the original because he'd already performed at the Grammys. He was like, I don't really want to do it again. Uh, he was positive he was going to get censored by ABC, so he was like, Yeah, no. And then finally, he's like, I'm not going to win. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> They're not going to give it to me. And then he wins. So that's why he came back in 2020. So he's like, all right, maybe I do actually want to do this. And they didn't censor him in 2020. So mm, nice. there was that. But but I can understand not wanting to be censored because this is a very unusual song for, you know, something that's typical of giving it to like the morning after. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 It's one of those things too. Like, um, like you say, it was his biggest hit. I think people that didn't even like Eminem liked mm-hmm. that song. I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of people... That may have been their entry point into him, or maybe that would have been the only song they ever heard from him. But it's, it's you know, it was kind of immediately iconic. So I think a lot of people probably there's musicians that it's the same for me. I've heard that one song from a movie, and yeah. I've never heard anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> totally, yeah, and it's like the one movie of his career too, which is kind of. I mean, I'm sure he's in a few other things here and there, but like he's not the star of anything else. So he was in a, uh, isn't he in a boxing movie? He's a he's got a boxing movie. Oh my gosh! Well, oh, really? I haven't seen it. <laughs> I think so. It's either boxing or it's like bare knuckle fighting or something. Mm, I'm sure he does. Wow. He well, makes an appearance in a Judd Apatow movie. I can't remember which one. Oh yeah, I mean he'll be himself. Yeah, now yes. and again. I think funny people maybe. That, <laughs> yeah, that I think it was funny people. Of, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But I think one of the biggest things, we're talking about how good his performance is, and then you look at who he's surrounded by, mm-hmm. and it's like Kim Basinger and Michael Shannon and um, Brittany Murphy and uh, McKee Pfeiffer, who's amazing in this, um, and it was he would stand out like a sore thumb, and nobody feels like they're holding his hand. It feels like he's an active participant in every scene that he is who he says he is. And he's acting with these heavyweights, you know, multiple Oscar winners. Mm. And that's incredibly impressive for someone's first go around. Yeah. It's the Seinfeld uh, scenario as I've understood it is if you aren't the good actor of the group, (laughs) this was the same thing with Brent (laughs) Budd on corner gas, surround Mm. yourself by amazing actors. Surround yourself by amazing performers. They'll lift what you're not able to, and uh, it's just a better experience. So I feel like maybe a little bit of that might have been in play for this movie. It seemed to work. I mean, uh, uh, Brittany Murphy is one of those actresses that I'm like, oh, fuck, gone too soon. You know, like, it's just when you see what she was doing. But then you look at, because I've always thought of her as someone who, like, oh, no, she was a megastar, like, Mm. from Clueless. But when you go back and read reviews, that doesn't appear to be the case. Everyone refers to this as, like, her big break, which mm. is very weird because she'd had, like, uh, Riding Cars with Boys and Girl Interrupted and, like, some big heavy hitters before this. But everyone's like, oh, no, this is her, her step into the big time. This mm. is, I think it's because everyone thought this was going to be her chance at an Oscar. Sure. I could have seen that if it if an Oscar went her way. Um 
the one thing is the second she's on screen, I was watching it with my wife and she's like, look at that hair. It's like 2002 <laughs> <Yes>. personified <laughs> yeah. in one haircut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty wild. It's just like rock hard. Yeah. <laughs> rock hard swoops. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's an odd. I mean, the, the other weird Curtis Hansen touches, but both her and Kim Basinger, uh, it's a horny film. <laughs> There's some yeah. very yes. explicit sex in this film, which I don't didn't really remember, and I was like, "Oh yeah, weird, weird." That is the odd. one big laugh because we were saying it's fairly humorless, but the mm-hmm. laugh where his mom is trying to uh, oh, yeah. tell him what her boyfriend will <laughs> yes. and will not do sexually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. But Michael Shannon has this wonderful story that he tells because this was his the first sex scene he'd ever done. And he talks about how the uh, there was a stunt double initially, like to do her lighting. So this naked woman is on top of him, and then she leaves, and Kim Basinger comes out. And this is apparently like one of the first scenes they shot. She gets on top of him, they do the scene, and they put her in her robe, and he's in his robe, and they're just sitting next to each other, and he's kind of like, like, oh my god, I'm next to Kim Basinger, and he looks over to his right, and he, go, he looks at this hideous green throw pillow, and he says. Nice, nice pillows. <laughs> and she's just like, mm-hmm. You know? And then apparently at the rap party, she presented him with a gift, and the gift was one of the pillows. Aww. So it was like, if he's like, I still had it up until a year ago. I have no idea where it went. Probably got lost and moved. But I'm like, that's adorable. That's I'm adorable. glad she had that sort of sense of humor. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting you bring up the joyless because that was something that um, – uh, and like uh, using that exact word, joyless, was something that Roger Ebert – said he's like i have no idea why kids will go to see this movie or even like this movie because he's like Mm -hmm. this is the bleakest thing ever and this is a complaint that and it's a weird complaint that kind of goes throughout all of these reviews is everyone's like he doesn't become the megastar Mm. like where's the emotional payoff and if you don't have the full rags to riches you just have oh okay now he's kind of over his stage fright now you're gonna watch him like climb a little bit higher on the ladder right but i think that's just so much conditioning especially of 2002 and 2002 is a very interesting year in terms of what's charting because we're the year after after 9-11 mm-hmm. and what people are interested in watching and what they want to feel and uh, we've talked about the number four movie was signs the number five movie was my big fat greek wedding mm-hmm. this is like number seven and then the the top three are franchises it's star wars and um harry potter and then there's another franchise i don't remember but uh this is something too where it's like this is bleak as shit but it is like an achievable victory Mm -hmm. like i'm sure people could have seen themselves in this moment like there's that like that scrappiness like you were talking about yeah there was like not that long ago there was a documentary on netflix about twisted sister Mm. and Mm. they the whole story is the whole documentary is them trying to get to the big time and then it ends with their first record deal. So they don't go into the fame and the fortune or oh, anything. Yeah. It's just like, this is the hmm. story. You knew what happened next. So hmm. I felt that kind of with this movie. It's like, he goes off and then he becomes Eminem and becomes yeah. famous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also am, I'm always like, I, I guess it's maybe a poor assumption, but whenever they like show a movie on TV in a movie, I'm like, this is their inspiration or whatever. And this one is Douglas Sirk's imitation of life is what uh, his mom is watching. So I, I wonder if it's, he's just like, this is an interesting melodrama about a guy in a trailer park. And, and like the, the fact that that victory is so minor, like this is a guy who, you know, the mother of his child seems to cheat on him. The other girl cheats on him and it's just like peace and he uh yeah he just gets this one little victory 
and even seems to kind of walk away from that celebration. He just kind of is like, I got what I needed. I got to go. And maybe there's something to that. Some weird heightened, I don't know. But it kind of like if it did do that, if it went into his fame thing, where would the story end? Yeah. You know what I mean? He'd have to like die or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think maybe that's when they like flash forward to like, uh, you know, she's a big model in the city in New York and she made mm-hmm. it and wasn't just horribly moved into some other area of the industry. Yeah. And, you know, he, she comes to see him backstage at like Ma- Madison Square Garden and then they fall in love and get married yeah. and that's the end of the movie. That's the feel good. This is becoming mahogany or something. I think <laughs> God, I love mahogany. Yeah. Where is my manic car ride with yeah. Anthony Perkins? That's what I'm missing. Um, no, like you said, Brittany Murphy is to me. She, she was outstanding in this movie, mm-hmm. and true star. And like that, Eminem was so good in this movie. The other movie that made me think of where the lead was not an actor, but he was really good was Howard Stern's Private. Parts. Oh yeah, Private Parts. Yeah, like he was. Yes. He was really. I thought he was really, really good in it, and uh, and you know probably the exact right guy for the job. But yeah, uh, yeah he was good, and I think it was the same surrounding him with really great actors and Paul Giamatti and all that kind of stuff. But it, it had been done before successfully. So I was glad to see it again. Yeah. I think that speaks to the quality of the, let's talk about the quality of the writing as well, mm-hmm. because you're writing someone's persona and you have to kind of establish what they're going to be like. And I mean, there's a reason why a lot of A-list stars have their own personal writers that when they sign on for a movie, like Will Smith has one, things like that, they then rewrite a bunch of the script lines in the voice of their their person. Like they are very specific for writing for that person. So when you have a non-actor like Howard Stern, you know, yes, you're going to let them kind of go off the cuff a bunch, but you still have to have them within a sort of scripted world. And these people are unbelievable at understanding how voice works and then writing for that voice, which makes it sound good for them. Right. Yeah. 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 And uh, the, the, the writer is uh, like a, a guy that you, Scott Silver is a uh, kind of a guy you might not know. He had a, uh, an indie movie called uh, John's that was kind of popular in the early nineties, but weirdly he went on to do the screenplay for the fighter and the Joker, which were both, Oscar nominated uh, with other people. It's one of those, you know, things. But yeah, he's he's like kind of a kind of all bangers. Uh, he did the Mod Squad, which maybe isn't a banger, but I, I haven't seen it lately. Maybe that's good. Yeah, it might be good. I like Claire Danes working. That's sure. all I'm saying. It's just keep Claire Danes working. <laughs> all right, and on that note, I think we can move on to our next film. Get ready for the party because it's 24 hour party, people, and that's coming up after the break. Cam, you know one of the reasons why I love working for Hollywood Suite? The money? <laughs> the money. The money is obviously number one because I have a very tiny dog no. who likes very fancy things. Sure. And, and that costs some cash, let me tell you. I think the biggest thing is that I just love how much care and attention is put into the curation of what goes onto the channel. Uh, you and the other programmers do such a great job of finding a huge variety of content that a lot of people haven't seen before. As well as, you know, the classic blockbuster favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the funny thing is, is you start this job and you, you think like, well, what does it matter that somebody gets to see the Warriors or something? Escape yeah. from New York, these big movies. But then uh, when you look at the landscape of of cable movies and streaming movies, uh, just so many of these classics get lost. Even the big boys, and like forget about uh, you know discovering black directors of the nineteen seventies, trying to put a lot of women directors forward. There's all, all this kind of wealth of material that has yet to come out, and it's always very satisfying. 
when we can get something on the air that we are surprised uh, connects with people. Yeah, I found a bunch of movies and original series and uh, exclusive series that I've connected with, and I know our listeners are going to as well. You can subscribe to Hollywood Suite through your TV provider, or you can go to Amazon Prime channels and you can subscribe through that. That's what I do. And if you want to find out more and have a look at listings, you can check out hollywoodsuite.ca. Okay, let's get back to the show. When examining the life of a person, the point of view is important. Tony Wilson was a real man. He passed away in 2007, young, at the age of 57. He was vital to the New Wave movement and the scene known as Madchester. He pissed a lot of people off in the process. He was very involved in the telling of his own biopic, 24-Hour Party People. He's a complicated guy. The betrayal in this film is summed up by Peter Hook of Joy Division and New Order as, and I'm going to use some British slang here, the biggest cunt in Manchester being played by the second biggest cunt in Manchester. However, today, Rowetta from the Happy Mondays, who not only plays herself in the movie, but was actively involved in the film's casting and production, was kind enough to give me some of her time. And she has very fond memories of both Tony Wilson and Steve Coogan, who plays him. We'll be hearing little sound bites from her. Okay, let's get into it. Cam, do you love this movie as much as I love this movie? Yeah, I'm actually uh, weirdly like a big Michael Winterbottom head from way back. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't know. He, he, I guess as I was coming up through film school is when he was in uh, in a very weird and experimental period, um, including this film, which I think is, is pretty unusual in its own way. Oh, yeah. But yeah, he kind of, uh, he made like Code 46 Nine Songs, which is like a pornographic concert film, if people have seen it. I don't know if it's necessarily worth anything, but it's this weird relationship drama uh, told between concert footage of the couple at a concert and then their various sex scenes. So yeah, he was just a guy that was very exciting at the time, and I think is still interesting, and uh, obviously, his, especially his relationship with Steve Coogan continues to be quite interesting. If people aren't familiar with the Trip movies, mm-hmm. uh, where he and Rob Brydon play fictionalized versions of themselves traveling to various places, eating and getting into trouble, they are charming hangout movies. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it depends on your tolerance for, like, Michael Caine impersonations, but I think they're, they're <laughs> reasonably fun to hang out with. Yeah, and a lot of his films have that kind of hangout vibe, including this one, I think. A lot of the, the interstitial sort of moments feel very uh, akin. I guess I should go through the plot, though, huh? It's yes, kind of complicated. Please, go for it. Yeah, so p- part of what Michael Winterbottom's deal is, too, is that it's a very, uh, po- you know, postmodern, <laughs> having fun with that. Uh, so 24-Hour Party People basically kind of starts with the idea that Tony Wilson was one of a, a very small handful of people at this one show the Sex Pistols did. Um, and every one of those people essentially went on to be relatively famous uh, within the Manchester music scene and internationally. So, so it kind of has this, you know, origin story, but then it's following Tony Wilson, uh, who created factory records, uh, created the factory, the club and the Hacienda, which were all kind of integral in the Manchester music scene, uh, with, you know, new, new order, joy division, happy Mondays. Uh, you're seeing this guy who is, has a very unusual job where he's, basically like the comedy news anchor and then he spends his night uh 
just, you know, finding these talented people and kind of bringing them together. And he's not necessarily great at it, but he was just, it's not quite right place, right time, because it does seem like he had some vision, and especially vision for Manchester as being, you know, more than just kind of uh, like Detroit, really. It was a, a sort of rundown old factory town with uh, nothing going on. So, uh, yeah, you, you see it, and it's it's all comedic throughout as well, for the most part, except, of course, some of the... Uh, dark things that you probably will anticipate knowing the stories of some of these bands. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of this odd portrait of a of a unique character uh, and his his effect on this like music in general. Really, are you a fan of this time period of music, Graham? I mean, I was. I'm a big fan of the like the punk era that they kind of start mm. at, and I like the other music that was in it. But I think of all the the bands I associated with was probably the Sex Pistols. Yeah, like I say, the music in was fantastic. Like it was, it mm-hmm. was great to have all those songs in there. But I'm not as big a fan as I think uh, some people made. Like this may be the biggest, you know, most wonderful film to somebody who's a fan of Joy Division or yeah, yeah, yeah. Love will tear us apart is my personal favorite song. So nice. it's oh, one of those things okay. where I'm just like, I want it played when I walk down the aisle at my wedding. Like I want it at all times. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so like this for me is like you know every I love the Happy Mondays. I love I love that like psychedelic vibe feel. Like I love mm. I love all of this. So this is a movie that is like tailor made for me. I also love that this is Michael Winterbottom decided to make this because he had just spent a winter in Canada filming a movie called The Claim mm-hmm. where the logline is a prospector who sold his wife and inter- infant daughter in exchange for a mining claim tries desperately to win them back as he builds the Pacific Railroad with a group of pioneer friends. This is the movie he does right before, and he's like, I was so depressed and I hated it so much that I needed to do something to fill my soul. And so he went to Tony Wilson, because he's also Manchester, Mancunian, Mancunian, I guess is what they call them, and Manchesterian, Mancunian. And he was like, I kind of want to do the story of Factory Records. Are you interested in doing that? And Tony Wilson was like, why? Yes. Yes, I am. So Tony Wilson's fingerprints are all over this. Everything you are seeing is something he personally approved of, which is so interesting because I I don't think this is a flattering portrayal of him. And he's such an unreliable narrator. And Steve Coogan is so... I mean, Steve Coogan, Steve Coogan. Like, when you think of the Steve Coogan performance, it's Alan Partridge. It's that, like, arrogant, missing things, but still... like wildly competent and let like Lux's way into success, failing upwards kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that this is the way this person saw his career. Yeah. I didn't think of him being uh, like, I didn't think of him as being portrayed badly. I thought like, I thought it was kind of a cool portrayal that we don't see a lot of. Usually it's like the producer knows exactly what they're doing Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, the, the inspiration has struck and everything goes, you know, in lockstep with one to another. And this was just kind of like, this is how I would run things if I was <laughs> it would just be a wild flail <laughs> for years and years and yeah. years. <laughs> <laughs> Although Tony Wilson seemed like a bit of a flailer, this production definitely was not. And it was really focused on trying to make things as authentic as possible. And that includes coming to Rowetta, who I spoke about before, was an original member of the Happy Mondays. Uh, so here she is talking about how she was contacted by Winterbottom's team and helped them put it all together. Michael Winterbottom came to Manchester and PA um, called me and said um, she'd like to speak to me or Michael would like to speak to me about researching, making sure they got it right. 
So they wanted to check that everything was authentic, everything was right with the Mondays. So I would have come and meet Michael. And I was like, of course, you know, and then I Googled him and then I was like, wow, he's done a lot of films, a lot of big films, you know, and he's worked with Kate Winslet and lots of people like that. But um, he's also from the North. So um, I was really looking forward to meeting him. So I took him to a place called Mutt's Nuts, which I thought was great. They played the same music that um, all the Manchester thing from back in the day. And we just got on straight away. We really connected. I was I was um, saying I would dress Sean um, in Hawaiian shirts and have Bez looking really cool. Just joking about it. He said, you'd definitely be useful, you know, to come on set. And then I said, why? Who's playing me? And so he's and he said, we haven't chosen anyone yet. And I knew my part's not going to be massive anyway. But I just said, can I play myself? And he just looked at me and he would have had to say, you don't, you look too old. He would have had to say, no. and he said, I don't see why not. And then he asked his people who were with him and the producer who I got on with very well as well, Andrew. So it was like, yeah, she can play herself. So it became then um, just brilliant for me. And then I invited the guy. I gave the guy who played Bez. I called him up and said, come down now because he really wanted to play Bez. Bez doesn't want anyone to play him. Michael said Bez can play himself if, if he won't let anybody play him. And I just knew this guy, Chris Coggill, would do a great job. So I got Chris to come that night as well and start dancing like Bez um, in the club that where we were, all were. And so that night, myself and Chris became Bez and Rowetta from 24-Hour Party People. And it was just the best, best time. And I had something to say about who who was like, they, they had me meeting the guy who played Sean. And it's fun that they're like almost everyone is in the movie, sometimes playing themselves, uh, shit talking the movie within the or movie. Or sometimes <laughs> like weird cameo, like Mar- when I was like, that's Marky e. Smith. Mm. Like there's, there's the dude from The Fall, you know, like all these, like everybody is in here and, and it's just so full of so many little Easter eggs for people, but everybody's having a good time. And they also mm. call attention to that at one point in the film, like this person is in it, this person's in it, this, and they kind of like mm-hmm. show where they are in different parts. Of- I I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known no. that all those cool people were in it. Yeah, it's, and, and I'm the same. I, I think, like, I kind of, I mean, I guess through uh, various other documentaries and uh, uh, films, I know the story of, like, Joy Division. But but after them, I'm not much of a guy to know the rest of it. So it's a very good movie to actually kind of hold your hand through uh, the scene and what was happening too. Cause yeah, I don't know, you know, the development of club music and whatever that is, <laughs> that is not my bag. Uh, so yeah. And it's, and it's funny and engaging in that way. And I also, the other weird thing is that like, uh, I was a big fan of, uh, Alan Partridge and Tony Wilson is kind of Alan Partridge, like in real yeah. life. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Steve Coogan even says that that's pretty much, yeah, it's partially based on that. So it is kind of charming to see him sort of riffing on that character in a different way. I think the most important thing and the thing that I have to say to everybody when people say this isn't right or this isn't right, they're, they're pointing out little things aren't right. They have to remember this is a comedy. It's a comedy. A lot of it was um, improvised on set. Uh, Steve Coogan came up with a lot of the lines because he knows Tony anyway, not necessarily what Tony would have said or what the band would have said. But people would ask, were asking, did Sean really pull a gun out in Dry Bar? Did um, he poison the pigeons? He definitely poisoned pigeons. Also, one of the things that I like really liked and identified with is that he kept his day job the whole yeah. time he was still yeah. doing the news kooky news thing and <laughs> mm-hmm. you know that he never turned this into like a career yeah <laughs> he gets to marry miss uk as a direct result yeah. it's a good it's thing he didn't <laughs> that's so. true yeah 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 it's i mean it's, it's yeah it's very interesting because it, it 
it is this kind of mix of like, was it just right place, right time? Is this guy just kind of full of shit? Or did he, you know, magically, he literally talks to God at one point that is him, you know? (laughs) Was there any of that? Like, it made me think a little bit about like American Splendor, where it's like this Mm. whole thing is happening around this person, but they still have to check in every day at their job and (laughs) just do normal people stuff. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I think this movie does really well, and I mean, Rowetta talked about this being a comedy at the end of the day, is that it kind of glosses over how bad things actually got. And talking to Rowetta, she's like, the bands would not go back to the Hacienda because the drug dealers had completely taken it over. There were guns. There was violence. It was really, really bad. Mm. And of course, the tragedy of what happened to Ian Curtis, uh, all of the substance abuse issues here, at no point do you ever get too sad. But I also feel like it deals with everything with a respect. So it's a really fine balancing act here tonally that I think they do a really good job of. It's also very, uh, and having been in like the UK uh, several times for, you know, different stretches of time, uh, it feels very British. Like nothing Mm. is sad or awful. It's just kind of like, okay, and on to the next thing. (laughs) Off we go. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's never, you know, even when he finds out that the lead singer of uh, Joy Division has died. He does. There's no tears or anything. He's just kind mm. of just okay. He's got to do the next thing. He's got to do the yeah. next thing. It's, it's, Off we go. Yeah. Too bad. But there's almost like a John Cleesean sort of quality. It's like okay, well, this is happening now, mm. and now we resolve this. Okay, this is happening now. Like there's that kind of. I see what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, because the uh, I find the British are not overly like they're not melodramatic folks. Mm. They're just kind of like well. Stiff upper lip and uh, and make some jokes. That's the other thing is they make yeah. jokes about this, whatever the terrible situation is. And I just felt like, yes, this is very much their culture. Is, yeah. yeah. And I think in the same way, it's it's like it's part of why it's a wackier comedy is because they don't like being super sentimental, I don't think, unless it's, you know, they. I think that they kind of associate that with like, uh, I just saw a great documentary where they were talking about the new romantics and they were like, the one guy's like, oh, shut up. This is like being like, oh, the London and the Blitz was so beautiful. Like, and, and yeah, I think that everyone kind of has that where it's like, don't, you know, the past, the yeah. past is, is, is bad in its own way. So th- this movie does that plenty. I mean, I love within the first five minutes, he's like, this is this guy. My wife's going to cheat on me with him in about five <laughs> minutes. And you're like, that's wonderful. I love that. Oh, even the analysis, the the Icarus thing where he's mm-hmm. like, I flew to close to the sky, son, and son, and maybe you guys should read more if you don't get that reference. Like he's just, you know, slapping at the audience. Um, I want to bring attention to, though, is like the there's so much love in this movie. Um, and especially in that final scene at the Hacienda Club, they've completely recreated the Hacienda. Mm-hmm. Like it has been... It is, and the uh, attention to detail is so specific. They actually bought back a bunch of items that were auctioned off. Um, so a lot of the set dressing is original. So this night, at the 24-hour party people night, it recreated the best of the Hacienda in that one night. And you had people walking around like ghosts, like Ian Curtis and Rob Gretton. They were walking towards you as we, and dancing. And it was it was almost like ghosts, all the people who passed um, from our, our history of factory and of the Hacienda in the club that night. So it was really, it was surreal, but amazing. It was just such a beautiful night. And I was dancing with the real Bez here and the fake one there and the fake John there. And um, yeah, it was really, really good. And some people, they, they were saying, you look just like her, which is really funny. There was just this surreality to the moment, which 
I think is beautiful. Mm. Like that, that's really incredible that you could recreate it to the point that people that were there would be like, yeah, this, this is exactly what it was like. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I kind of like, it almost sounded, uh, kind of made up. <laughs> like yeah. I know that it wasn't, but it sounded, the pl- place just sounded very like they had money somehow around to m- build this thing. And somehow there was, it just seemed like I was well, like, oh. That's what he says. It's all New Orders money. Like, mm, it just, yeah. he was just funneling it <laughs> off of the bands. And it just, which is, you know, another reason why Peter Hook, it doesn't sound like, was a huge fan of him. <laughs> it sounds like they kind of went back and forth. And Rowetta also talks about how it was like your own personal boot camp. Like, you had been in some sort of event with people. Because, like, she works with Peter Hook all the time. She's sung for Simply Red. Mm. Like, if you were part of this group, like, you, you then have a connection to other people. And you know what it was like. And you work in a certain way. There's another kind of like thing like that that so many uh, now famous people funneled their way through, and I'm trying to f- remember what it is. Get back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about the Groundlings UCP, UCB or Second City? Second like City's a good one. Yeah. It's, uh, it, are you thinking of the, the weird Godspell performance that had all of SCTV? That is what I'm thinking of. Yes. Godspell. Okay. That yes. It was just like this All of SNL, SCTV. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, we, Please listen to our episode on Godspell. <laughs> yes. It's excellent. <laughs> Victor yeah. Garber was in there. Yeah. yeah like it's uh, it, that one is pretty crazy. That Godspell situation. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to hear about these moments and and all the people that come out of it. And it's quite often like uh, like this time when you didn't have to have a lot of money to get stuff done. Um, yeah, I, I don't maybe there are boom times <laughs> in well, right yeah. now. I don't know. <laughs> They're like just being part of a scene like an art scene. There are these different like epochs of time where you're like, mm. OK, this this was when this whole group of people were coming up and they went on to do this, that, and the other. And yeah. then, uh, and so, yeah, you kind of can identify those like classes, basically like class of, uh, mm. 2005. Well, that's like and, Emma Thompson, Hugh Laurie, and Stephen Fry were all in this same, uh, Cambridge class mm-hmm. at the same time. They were all in the foot, Cambridge footlights. Can you imagine like being in that class and being like, oh, well, those guys are like, I may as well quit now. <laughs> <laughs> or being somebody who didn't, you know, didn't come up the same way where you're like, well, was I the only one that didn't do well? (laughs) (laughs) True. Exactly. Well, I want to bring up Steve Coogan because 2002 is like a really interesting year for him. Number one, because this is like right in the middle of the phone tapping scandal that would Mm -hmm. really break in 2011. And he was one of the biggest parts of that. And it's actually one of the things that I like he was one of the main people they were tapping. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why he didn't hit as big in the States is I, I think he was intended to. So like we're a couple years off from Tropic Thunder. Um, and then that was kind of it. Like Hamlet 2 comes out and completely fails. And that was supposed to be a mega hit because it was the same guys who did uh, Team America. And it has that same sort of flavor to it, like very irreverent, like lampooning everything, um, which is what he's good at. But yeah, like, why wasn't he a hit in the States? The weird thing is, is, and I could be way out to lunch on this, but uh, I think people in the States like people with their accent. I feel like unless it's <laughs> like, unless they're like cherry picking from British productions, like a mm. Hugh Grant or something like that, it feels like, uh, like that's how Hugh Laurie was able to come over as uh, he does. He does an American mm. accent for years and years and years. And, uh, you know, gets ingrained in the pop culture. That's just, but like I say, I may be completely missing the mark on that. He also, I mean, as you, as you said on the way, like he had a reputation for being a real 
uh, asshole uh, and was kind of a bad tabloid bad boy. That's why he got his phone tapped. He would go on, I think, after this to date Courtney Love briefly. Like he, he was, uh, yeah, he was a bit of a. I, I don't think we fully get the picture of what Steve Coogan was like. The reason why he was he was married to his wife, who was a socialite, uh, Catherine Hink- Hinkson, for I believe. Two months, uh, and then the scandal broke that he uh, had a little bit of a uh, sex worker and cocaine habit mm. at the same time, and he had slept with two uh, lap dancers that they had footage of, et cetera, et cetera. But that's also how they got. That's part of what broke the fact that he was being tapped mm. is that they had all of this information um, about him and why he was one of the central figures of this. Is that it? That basically his his antics took his marriage down, and that was revealed in the in the tabloids. He's yeah, interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think. It's it's just a complexity. Whenever I, uh, not that I go very often, but whenever I'm in the UK, I'm fascinated. If you go, I always suggest you go to the biographies section, and you're just like, who are these? Who people? are these people? Yeah, they, it's a whole other culture. There's a whole, yeah, it's a, there's a lot that doesn't get over here, and uh, and I think that there's, you know, Steve Coogan kind of has the PBS crowd on his side, uh, and people like us, I guess. So it is he's doing the, all right. the thing that you say about going to the biography section. I would go and do comedy in the UK and they would say like, Oh, this person has worked with this person. That's for this person. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know even vaguely who those people Mm, were, mm, but mm, then mm. you'd be walking and they'd be on the side of a bus and you're like, Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But they have quite the star system. And I think part of it is the fact that they have panel shows in a way we don't have panel shows. And actually that's something I think Canada needs to do. Like you're on the debaters and I think debaters is like a great start for that kind of thing, which is great. Like we get a lot of amazing comedians on the debaters, Um, but it's not televised, right? Like you do live shows and it's on the radio and things like that. But like UK panel shows create a star system for them and their, um, not just their comedians who get to show their chops, but like then you get to get get like your musicians on and like po- uh, pop stars and the comedians make them look good, mm. which then, you know, perpetuates the star system they have. And I think Canada really needs to start looking at doing panel shows as a as a way to create a star system. I feel like they try it all the time and it just never takes. I don't know. We're, uh, we're not mean enough or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> More Canadian Taskmaster. Yeah, That's what yeah, I want. I, <laughs> I don't want to watch people do weird shit with golf balls. Let's I don't go. Know. I don't, it's not what people... People want family feud and just family feud and that's the way it is. <laughs> it's but <true>. yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's... Uh, you know, uh, we'll uh, we'll be fine. Uh, nobody would nobody would buy books like that in Canada either. So I don't know. Although, like yeah. you go to, like I go to the thrift store quite a bit, and there's mm. like an amazing amount of Rick Mercer books. Okay, <laughs> yeah. All right. So that I think that he made well, and also red green books. Sometimes you oh, find sure. a red green book somewhere. I so. had those as a youth. I'm, I'm not above that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's our culture. Yeah. <laughs> Red, green, and yeah. Rick Mercer. Yeah. Well, There's the two wild swings. Exactly. <laughs> uh, one of the things, speaking of the comedy, one of the things I think this movie gets really, really right is just the capturing the sardonic irreverence. And are you guys familiar with the uh, Factory Records discography numbering system? I I saw a bit of it. They just numbered everything like maniacs. Is that the, the kind of idea? 
I love this. This makes me, I don't know, maybe because I'm a hyper-organized and I love a spreadsheet, but I also just love the fact. It seems like a fun, weird, gaggy thing and assigning this importance. So everything, normally when you have a label, you will, you know, number your tracks and to be able to keep track of them and what things are. So Factory Records came up with this idea of having um, the factory number system. So the last digit of the number may designate the following, but inconsistencies about is the factory corporate or the Happy Mondays or Joy Division or Daruti Column or factory classical. So the last number usually is associated to whatever the artist is. That's not always true because this isn't just listing musical number, musical items or musical items in the catalog. So it's FAC 1, 2, 3, etc. This also includes like prototypes for things like this artist created a uh, period calendar counter for the for factory records just because they thought that was a fun idea that has a fact number. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Wilson's uh, <laughs> Tony Wilson's uh, coffin is the final fact number. Yeah. Um, if there was like fanzines, they would do it. Um, there were like uh, trips to New York and or trip, trips to LA to like pitch movies have a fact number. Like really, they used it as like the chronicle of their history, which is really interesting. So when you get in, you're like, here's all like the weird stuff that all has numbers. It's it's mm. super fun. Yeah, and I think yes. the, the poster you see the guy make that was too late to be the poster for the gig they're at is fact no, number one, I think, because a lot of the posters are labeled too, which is a cute nod. And I like that a cat has a number. That's, that's one yes. of them. <laughs> one of them is a cat. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just fun to go through. Number one, if you're interested in the music, like this is like cataloging everything. Um, and so you can go through and be like, oh, I haven't listened to Cab- Cabaret Voltaire in years. I want to try the Stockholm Monsters. Like it's really, if you like this kind of music, it's a great um, catalog of all sorts of stuff you may not have heard before. But yeah, there's all sorts of nice little fun Easter eggs like a cat. Mm-hmm. So super cool, super worth your time. That's cool. I've never heard of anything like that before where it's... Uh, yeah, I've never heard of anything like that before. It's so <laughs> yeah, cool. Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's the kind of like irreverence that you're dealing with, right? Like that's why what the sense of humor you're seeing is very much that sense of humor. Mm. Even though it makes like it becomes a nightmare, I'm sure, for people to have to deal with <laughs> to find things. And- <laughs> well, I mean, I think the biggest thing they show is that challenge of balancing the business with the art. And that's what Tony Wilson is supposed to be doing is he's supposed to be the business, but he's just not like the, the, I don't, I actually don't know if this is true or not is the original contract written with new order was, and with all the artists on the label was written in blood that he doesn't actually own the music. The artists own the music. And I mean, that is number one, like every business owner would look at that and going, what are you doing? Don't let the artists own their own tracks. Um, If you want to hear something fun of this same year, please go listen to the originations of the Spice Girls in our episode about Bandit Like Beckham. Mm. That story is way more punk rock than you'd think it is. It's amazing. But do you wonder at all if that was part of the success of the bands, that they owned all these things, and so they got to try stuff that you know if if there was a bottom line involved they would never be able to yeah you know put yeah. out this second album or this weird concept or yeah, you know go yeah. off in a different direction yeah and Rowetta talks about at the end of the day like what took a lot of this stuff apart is unfortunately the substance abuse like mm. there was just such a readily available access to substance abuse especially through the hacienda uh, and i mean that's what really 
turned the Happy Mondays upside down. That's such an unfortunate part of the music business because you're you're you, there's so much pressure. Like you're you're doing like late nights and you're going constantly, and it's also the mystique of that lifestyle of like oh yeah, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, there's almost an expectation to do that alongside the pressure, mm-hmm. and that's what really curbs people's creativity. At the end of the day, they were able to they had so much freedom to fly, and yet you you put these own restrictions on yourself, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, I've, I don't think I've ever, well, I don't know. Now there's this weird boom in comedy albums in Canada, and every label mm. has their own weird way of doing things. <laughs> and some people just self-release, and that's as much as uh, as anybody's uh, label is able to do. So it's it's a funny, it's that kind of thing. Like, some labels are just like, do whatever you want. We'll put it out. And then some are like, nope, you got to number the tracks like this and you got to have them this long and you got to have all this kind of stuff. So it is, it's funny to see who does what because those, yeah. Uh, yeah, that restrictor is off. What do you as an artist prefer to work with, Graham? I like to be completely, either completely open to do anything I want or completely hemmed in. And yeah, I, I was going to say. Yeah. Like, I like. I see you, give him you, no wiggle room. I see you hem yourself into a real corner once or twice. <laughs> because then you're, you're, you're pushing out against it and you're making your creativity, like, actually do some work, do mm. some heavy lifting, where if you've got everything ahead of you to do whatever, you never decide on a, on a way to go. There's too many options. So. Sometimes it's good to have that, and then sometimes it's good to like make it make it this size and uh, yeah. and do whatever you want inside that size, but do it that way. Yeah, and I think that's uh, also the danger of being like, oh, this person's a genius. Just give them a bunch of money and let them go, mm-hmm. which is also what happens with the Happy Mondays in the film, yeah. right? Like yeah. they're like, they they just go off to Ibiza and they're supposed to be making a record and they just blow it all on coke and then sell yeah. the furniture of the of the house they're staying at. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which apparently one hundred percent happened. So yeah. so there's that. I love it. All right. And I think that is where we will leave our Mancunian friends. So I want to thank Cameron Maitland once again for joining us. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'll also say uh, with the Winterbottom stuff, if you like 24-hour party people and have not seen, it's heavily inspired by the novel of Tristram Shandy. And pretty much everybody involved kind of went on to make a very fun adaptation of Tristram Shandy that is like both... Uh, an adaptation and a meta commentary in the way that Tristram Shandy is and 24 Hour Party People is. So I really recommend that film. Nice. Perfect. Ram Clark, thank you once again for joining us. It was always such a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a blast. I love doing this. And (laughs) I don't think I would have sat down and watched all of 24 Hour Party People because I'd always got bits and pieces of it. But this gave me an excuse to like really... This this is the hemmed in thing again. Like, do you have a deadline and you have to do this? And so I stayed up super late watching it last night. I'm sorry, well, you have to go you. enjoy this film with a ton of great soundtrack. Oh, oh, the worst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, like, if if people on this podcast have like my recommendations, uh, this is easily in my top five favorite movies. Mm. I love this movie so much. It's just like nothing else out there, and the music is so good. So yeah, check it out. I want to say thank you once again to Rowetta for taking the time to chat with us and to give us some insights on the making of the film. If you're not familiar with Rowetta's work, uh, I mean, go listen to the Happy Mondays. She's got this incredible voice. You may have heard her voice being sampled in the Black Eyed Peas, Boom Boom Pow, but uh, her solo work, one of my personal favorites, is she does an incredible rendition of I'm Telling You I'm Not Going from Dreamgirls. 
please do yourself a favor and check her out. She's amazing. And you can join us once again in two weeks where the earth is under attack from the inside and the outside. It's Signs and Reign of Fire. And we're going to be joined by Parkdale Haunt's very own Alex Nursal. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cam Maitland and Graham Clark as our guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.